Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at the In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Hulls, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine and publisher at Murania Press, takes a look at the thrilling group's Western pulp heroes. It was recorded on August 13, 2015, at Pulp Fest 2015 in Columbus, Ohio. Here is Ed. I don't. I don't. I hope you don't expect too much uh, profound insights because I've been up since 4:30 this morning, <laughs> and in my haste to leave, I left my notes for this presentation at home. However, being a man of few thousand words, I'm sure that uh, I can come up with something. Any of you who've read my book, The Blood and Thunder Guide to Pulp Fiction, know that I am not a huge, huge fan of what is known as the thrilling group. That's the group of pulps that was started by publisher Ned Pines uh, in the early 30s. And it included such labels as Standard, Beacon, Better Publications, Needor. There were a whole bunch of different shell companies that were connected with what became known, the brand name, as the thrilling group. The editorial director was Leo Margulies, who we'll be uh, saluting later this weekend. Uh, his, um, I forget if he's the grandnephew or the, the relation to Leo Margulies, will be here to discuss some behind the scenes family stuff. I'll be on a panel with him and Will Murray tomorrow. But um, uh, Pulp Fest this year asked me to do a little presentation on the, on the Western pulps. Now, I have to preface this by saying that I believe the standard Western pulps are pretty much like the pulps of every other genre that they've published. It's my opinion, and only my opinion, worth two cents and nothing more, that the entire line edited by Leo Margulies was competent, it was professional, but it was rarely outstanding. The stories are conventionally entertaining, they're very seldom anything more than that. This goes for their Westerns, their detectives, their hero pulps, their sports pulps, and everything else. They're strictly formula publications. The only exceptions that I would make are the science fiction magazines, Thrilling Wonder Stories and Startling Stories, especially during the 40s and the 50s when they were edited by Sam Merwin and Sam Mines. To me, those are, are really outstanding pulps, and the best issues of those magazines rival the best issues of any science fiction magazines being published during that period, again, in my opinion. But like I say, the uh, thrilling group was, was always competent, always professional. They had solid, workmanlike craftsmen, but the stories are rarely memorable. And this goes from the, the most modest 5,000-word short story right up to you know, the 40 or 50,000-word short novel that's in some of the, uh, the single character titles. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you a brief uh, a slideshow of some of the highlights. And we'll take it from there. I'll make whatever comments are I deem appropriate here. This is the first issue of the first Western Pulp published by the Thrilling Group, Thrilling Ranch Stories. This is the November 1933 issue, Romantic Stories of the West. You can see they have a new Zane Gray feature down there in the bottom left-hand corner. Of course, Zane Gray was the top-selling author at that time. He was not at that time a pulp author, obviously. He was selling uh, novels that were serialized in slick magazines and then going to hardcover, although his first big success 
Heritage of the Desert had been in a pulp magazine. That, that really catapulted him to fame. But getting him with anything uh, was, was considered a big boost for a pulp publisher, especially one as modest as the Thrilling Group was at this time. I should also say that Margulies, um, uh, the Thrilling Group rarely paid top rates. They occasionally made deals with specific authors who had, whose name value was worth a lot to pay them a little more. But most of their writers got anywhere from a half a cent to a, a penny a word, which really was, was uh, not remarkable at all during those uh, uh, Depression days, considering that some of the best writers of Western pulp during the 20s uh, had been getting as much as 10 cents a word. So they rarely attracted a thrilling the kind of talent that uh, uh, really produced the very best Western fiction. Again, competent, workmanlike, but not particularly distinguished. Uh, Robert Dale Denver is another one here. You probably can't read it, but in the fine print you've got other stories by Lawrence A. Keating, Alan K. Eccles, and Ray Nofsinger. Again, these were all guys who were very common, very prolific authors. Um, I don't know who did this particular cover. By the way, if any of you who are art mavens know the artists of some of these covers I want to pipe in, by all means do. Here's the second issue. Uh, again, you see Peter B. Kind, who at one time was considered a top name. Now, he is totally forgotten today. He did a lot of books, um, a lot of stories that were published in book form, and he was incredibly prolific in terms of Hollywood. Practically everything he ever wrote was licensed at one time or another by a Hollywood producer. But in, invariably, they were made as B-grade movies. I would say that the movie with the biggest, uh, the Peter B. Kind story with, that had the biggest success on the screen was Valley of the Giants, which was made several times, including once as a Technicolor picture. My guess is that this new feature is probably a retitled reprint, because the top guys were not going to work for the kind of money Margulies was paying. So in these early years especially, to get these pulps kick-started and moving, he probably bought a bunch of reprint stuff. I have this issue, but I don't actually remember what the Peter B. Kind story is. Uh, again, you've got a book-length novel by Ray Nofsinger. Any of you who enjoy the popular pulps, he was a very common contributor to uh, Dime Western and Star Western, their top two titles, which were much better magazines. Here's another Thrilling Ranch stories. J. Edward Lighthead, who was another fixture. Arthur Hawthorne Carhart, and again, you see Nossinger. The one thing I, I will say, this cover is by R.G. Harris. The covers of these uh, mid-30s and late-30s popular uh, thrilling group Western pulps are uniformly excellent. They have really terrific uh, paintings. As they get into the 40s, some of these other artists got a little sloppier. The styles changed. They were a lot more broad. But like this rendering of this guy is, is, is very good. Harris, in particular, did some terrific covers for these books. Here's another one. Now you'll see, if you can read it in the middle, it has a story, El Cascable Rides Again, a novelette by A. Leslie. That was A. Leslie Scott, who probably more than any single author, you know, what Max Brand was to Street and Smith and Western Story Magazine, uh, A. Leslie Scott was to the thrilling group. And he contributed to a great many of the titles, including some of the big ones that we'll see later. Tom Curry, who gets the low billing there at the bottom, was also one who was uh, incredibly prolific. 
and I think one of the better writers for the line. He, he worked on the Rio Kids series, which we'll take a look at later. Here again, this is another Harris cover. Now, it's apparent that some of these are taken from movie stills he used as models. This is a uh, shot uh, featuring the cowboy actor Tim McCoy, and I have a, a print of that particular still, and uh, Harris did an excellent job of swiping it. Uh, this is again. This is a. Uh, this is the 19 June 1934 issue. You can always tell the 34s and some of the 35s by the NRA sticker you see down here at the bottom of the right. That's on most pulp magazines during this period. This is another Harris. Again, a really nice rendering. Same basic group of guys. Forbes Park Hill. Jackson Cole is a byline that you see on a lot of these pulps. All good work. The thrilling Western titles were, uh, uh, or magazine, I should say, was um, it, w it was the equivalent, uh, roughly, of Western Story at Street and Smith or Dime Western at popular publications. It was kind of the flagship of the Western pulps uh, during that early period. The others were mostly spin-offs, and it attracted some of the better writers. Uh, you had various series characters, none of them particularly important. I mean, there was a uh, character called El Halcón, the Falcon, a.k.a. Walt Slade, and he uh, romped through this magazine during the mid and late 30s, and actually well into the 40s. Here's another nice cover. Again, you can see the, the from the color schemes and always the relatively close shots of cowboys in action. You know, firing their guns mostly. Guns almost always drawn on these covers. This is another Harris cover. And take a good look at this one, because you'll see it later on. Uh, the thrilling group certainly was not alone in, in a certain practice, but they made it kind of an art form, which is they would reuse cover paintings over and over and over, sometimes with as little as a year or two in between usage. And they would repaint the covers. They would use different color schemes. They'd white out some details. But you'll see that particular pose again. The uh, main, uh, the lead story in this is called The Two-Gun Trail, a complete action novel by Johnston McCulley, who of course was the creator of Zorro. Now, The Two-Gun Trail, I believe, was an audition for a series character that didn't catch on. He was called The Walking Death, and he was uh, dressed all in black from head to foot with a black sombrero, no cape, but otherwise all black and, and uh, uh, I believe that, uh, uh, by the way, a, a colorless character in other ways besides attire. So he, he never caught on, but I believe this was an audition to see if they would make that a series character and possibly spin him off into his own magazine. Now this particular cover is by another uh, mainstay of those early thrilling Western pulps, Richard Lyon. This one is a swipe from a Tom Mix movie still. Um, it is, uh, <clears throat> this is an exceptionally good issue, although I have to tell you at the moment, I can't tell you why. But I read this one not too long ago, and I remember it being excellent. This is a uh, 1935. This is another Harris. As a matter of fact, you can see uh, he had picked this one up. Um, he had gotten, I'm sorry, I'm too tired. Uh, he signed this, and somebody picked up this issue 
at uh, one of the conventions here just a year or two ago, and I bought it from him. Again, a very nice action cover. Harris was doing exceptional work at this time, but later on, for whatever reasons, maybe because they were doing too much work, they, their styles got looser and they got a little splashier. The renderings were not as crisp and there was a lot more open color and they, they had more of a slapdash look to them. You'll see them as they come up. This is uh, the May, I believe this is May 1935 issue. Now the second, the uh, uh, Thrilling Ranch stories and Thrilling Western were followed by the introduction of popular Western uh, this is the December 1934 issue, and I believe this is the first issue. Now, you're, again, you're seeing a, 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 some of the other writers who worked on the other titles, Wilton West, L.P. Holmes, Claude Rister. They're, again, standbys. Now, you also found a lot of house names in these pulps because you had the same basic, and, and this by no means was unique to thrilling. I mean, just as Wild West Weekly at Street and Smith, you had about six guys doing 90% of the stories under a variety of different names. They did the same thing. There were Cliff Walters is a house name. Um, Wilton West, I believe, is a house name, too. And that cover, I don't know who did that cover. And I can't make out any signature. But Popular did the same thing. Uh, it was the Thrilling Group's version of Star Western of Popular, which is Dime Western, like its counterpart Thrilling Western, ran a bunch of short stories with an occasional short novel and a couple of novelettes. Popular Western, especially in the beginning, had five short novels rather than the, the, the smorgasbord of, of short stories and whatnot. Star Western did the same thing at popular publications. So that was really the only difference. And I suspect that the writers, because they were writing longer stories, they certainly probably got better rates for, uh, for doing popular Western. Here's another one. Now, this time, you see they've changed the policy. Now it's not five novels anymore. Now it's 15 complete quick-trigger stories, most of which are very short. The average story here is 5,000 words, really with the artwork about 10 pages uh, or less. And in this one, you have, uh, again, uh, uh, a great lineup. You've got McCulley again. You've got Claude Rister, who was another one of these guys who's almost totally forgotten today, and yet he was considered quite uh, uh, successful by his peers. He was thought of very highly, and Claude Rister also sold a number of his stories to Hollywood, uh, who made them into movies. Lee Bond, who's also in this lineup, he of course worked on at Wild West Weekly. He did the Oklahoma Kids series and many others under different names. A. Leslie, again, you'll see A. Leslie Scott, L.P. Holmes, Jackson Cole, Stephen Payne, who was a, a popular contributor to Double Day's West magazine. He came over. I, it's my own belief, too, when you, especially when I read some of the stories, that when you see some of the better names here, I happen to think that the stories that uh, Thrilling was getting, mostly because they were paying less money, were probably rejects from the better-paying markets. So... Uh, I have to think that, that, that you, 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 when you see some of these names that are not normally associated with the thrilling group, it's probably because the stories had been kicked back from, say, Doubleday or, uh, you know, Blue Book or Adventure or Argosy, some of the better general adventure titles. So do you remember that title? That was, that was we saw that a little bit before in Thrilling Western. That is the R.G. Harris 
cover. They've changed the guy's shirt color and his hair color, and they've painted out the background with the broken window. But that's the same cover. And this is uh, either a 1937 or 38 issue. So this only appeared a couple of years after the original. And this very same cover was printed later in the early 40s on one of the other titles. Now you're into the 40s, and as you can see, this is a much looser kind of almost comic booky looking cover. I mean, the, the strokes are very broad. Uh, you don't have the tight rendering. But you do see some nice names there. You see Joe Archibald, who of course was a fixture in the Thrilling Group's aviation pulps. This is a uh, wartime issue. This is May 1942. You can see the little Red Cross sticker up there, Give to the War Fund. Here's a nice one. You don't often see too many straight Western magazines. You don't often see covers taking place in snow scenes, you know, in the Northwest. <clears throat> Gunnison Steele was another popular Western writer in the pulps. Um, T.W. Ford, another. Now, this is much later in the 40s. I don't know who the artist is here either. These issues in particular are really hit and miss propositions. You can get one, and the stories are pretty good. You can get one that's barely readable. What you do have in some of these later 40s issues, you have some, some interesting writers. Louis L'Amour, who, of course, became famous for his westerns, when he was working for Thrilling, he did everything. He did South Sea stories. He did a couple detective stories. He did a little of everything, but he eventually uh, graced the thrilling Western pulps with the adventures of a character named Chick Beaudry. And um, he's in at least a couple of these here. All right, now we're into the first of the single character uh, pulps from Thrilling, although you wouldn't believe it from the title. Texas Rangers was launched in 1936. Um, most of the Texas Rangers stories were written by A. Leslie Scott, although there a big number of them were contributed by other authors. Just like The Phantom Detective, which was another thrilling group that practically every writer who ever worked for the country took a whack at, at The Phantom Detective at one time or another. Uh, the lead character of Texas Rangers, who was called Jim Hatfield, uh, was another one of these guys that just, that just about everybody working on the Western Pulps took a shot at a Jim Hatfield somewhere along the line. Jim was the classic Western hero of the, what I would call the more adolescent type stories. You know, guys like Zane Gray and some of the other top writers had romantic interests and cowboys were, were basically generally interested in women, whereas the more juvenile kind of stuff like Wild West Weekly catered to a younger audience. They, the cowboys were strictly in love with their horses and they didn't want anything to do with women. Jim Hatfield had a horse called Goldie that was his big, uh, his big flame. <laughs> but the amazing thing about Jim Hatfield, who also, by the way, was known as the Lone Wolf. He's a duly appointed officer of the law. He's, he's a Texas Ranger. Supposedly, he was uh, operating under the rules and the strictures of that particular organization. But he's called the Lone Wolf, and he pretty much does whatever he wants. And uh, anybody who is a student of jurisprudence will find very quickly that you know, 99% of the tactics that he employs are strictly, you know, illegal, unconstitutional, anything else you want to put it. You know, uh, he was frequently, you know, uh, he was one of the guys he would go undercover with a gang, you know. There was a gang of rustlers operating in this section, and he's going to try and get the goods on them, and they've killed six rangers already, which is the kind of situation you see here. I don't know if you can read the sign, but 
the sign hanging from that guy's, who's hanging, says, warning, we hang rangers. And they've underlined hang as if he couldn't figure out what was going on. <laughs> so, but that, they're just mean that way, you know. So anyway, to the extent that you can consider Texas Rangers a single character pulp, because after all, Jim Hatfield figured in every one of the 206 issues published between 1936 and 1958, Jim Hatfield is actually the longest running hero pulp character except for the shadow. So a lot of the characters with very long runs that we associate with like Doc Savage and the Phantom Detective and the Spider, all of whom had well over 100 issues or more, uh, Jim Hatfield actually had them all beat except the shadow. And Thrilling canceled, I mean it's a measure of how popular he was, that Thrilling canceled almost all of their pulps in 1953. All, a lot of titles that you're going to see after this, they might have started in the 30s and they, they weathered the paper shortages of the war, but by 1953, they were all gone. But this one, this one lasted until 1958. And Jim Hatfield wasn't done then because Ned Pines had a satellite company called Popular Library, which published paperbacks. And a whole slew of the Jim Hatfield novels wound up in paperback, some under different titles, I believe. Some of them, I think, were revised. But it was a character that was very, very popular, inexplicably so, in my opinion. I mean, just like I said before, they're fun. They're great for one read. I have never, of the dozens that I've read, I've never had the a slightest desire to go to one a second time. And yet this magazine persevered and was extremely popular. Here's another Richard Lyon cover. This is from a 1938 issue. Now this is another Lyon cover, but this one isn't as tightly rendered. Look at the folds. Look at the wrinkles on his clothing. They're not sharp. They're just kind of like slapped in there. It's, it's more, uh, would you say impressionistic, David? Or expressionistic? Or just sloppy? I like the cursory. Cursory? Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Now this one, I believe, is a George Rosen cover. George Rosen, after he was summarily dismissed from the shadow for uh, I don't know how to phrase it. Uh, after he left Street and Smith, he did a lot of work for Thrilling. You'll see more of his covers. This, I believe, is an Earl Berge cover. I don't see a signature, but it, it kind of looks like Berge's. You think so, David? And again, this is a wartime issue. You can see the by uh, defense uh, uh, war bonds and war stamps there in the corner. Now, this is another one that was lifted from a movie still. The, the two guys in the background come from some other source, but the cowboy shooting, who presumably is Jim Hatfield, that's actually Tim McCoy from a 1932 movie called Cornered. And again, I only know this because I happen to have the still that the artist used as, as the model. The Black Hat Riders, this is an issue I have not read. It's another wartime issue. You can see the buy war bonds and stamps there at the bottom. Okay, uh, in 1938, after Thrilling had, had published, launched Texas Rangers, they were still publishing Thrilling Western, Thrilling Ranch Stories, popular Western. This was their fifth major Western title. This, of course, uh, began as a double-day title in 1926. 
It was sold in 1935 or 36 to Ranger Publications, which for many years some of us believed was an offshoot of Red Circle, uh, the group published by um, Martin Goodman, who of course later did Mar uh, Marvel Comics. Now it turns out that Ranger was a different, a different company altogether, but in any event, Ranger sold West to the Thrilling Group in 1938. Now West in the Doubleday period is an extremely good magazine. I did a survey on it in Blood and Thunder a few issues back, and it's an excellent magazine. You've got terrific authors all throughout West's history at Doubleday, and even the Ranger issues, which were edited by the same guy who edited the Doubleday version towards the end of its run, he stayed on, and you had some pretty good stuff. Once this title goes to thrilling in 1938, it just flattens out completely. So where you might have had some highs here and there, and this, at thrilling, it's like this, all the way. And it kept up that way pretty much until 1944, I believe, when Johnston McCulley signed to do some Zorro short stories for West. Why? My best guess is the Tyrone Power Mark of Zorro movie, which was released by 20th Century Fox in 1940, was a mega hit that spurred interest in McCulley's by then lo pretty long dormant character. They did a uh, new printing of, of the Mark of Zorro, which is the original Zorro story called Curse of Capistrano. And my feeling is that after a few years of this, there was just enough interest that McCulley, who was working for the Thrilling Group on other books, as a matter of fact, he brought, uh, during the 40s, he brought his detective story magazine character, Thubway Tham, to the Thrilling Detective Pulps, and also the Crimson Clown, who was another detective story magazine character. So he was already working for Leo Margulies. He was well entrenched in the company. And whether it was his idea to revive Zorro or not, I don't know. But the Zorros became a popular backup feature in West, appearing in most every issue between like 1945 and 1951 or 52. And the interesting thing about those stories is a lot of the short stories that appeared in West with Zorro were actually adapted for the TV show uh, with Guy Williams. So, um, and, and there's, as a matter of fact, there's a multi-episode continuity, I believe, that came from a, a similar continuity of short stories that appeared uh, in West. However, the, the, another interesting thing to me is that even Zorro, though Zorro was considered popular enough to run, uh, in practically every issue. He never made the cover of West. I don't think there's a single Zorro cover. Here's another 30s cover. Again, not terribly well done. This is uh, 1939, I believe. J. Allen Dunn, again, a real mainstay. Uh, he wrote everything. He wrote, he wrote a lot of great stuff. I mean, I think of him mostly for the stuff that he wrote for Adventure, including his classic Desert Island story, uh, Barehanded Castaways. But he also wrote Horse Operas by the Ream. Uh, he wrote a couple of different series for Wild West Weekly. I mean, you can find issues of Wild West Weekly from the early and mid-30s where there are three stories by Dunn, one, maybe one under his own name and a couple under house names. So I have to guess that him breaking into West here is strictly an example of a story that was rejected by better paying markets. Uh, here again, this is another issue that I have just because it had a, uh, a, a, another novel by Johnston McCulley. And this is another wartime issue. I believe this is September 43. This is one of the later issues. Uh, I don't know who the cover artist is here. 
David, you have any idea? It looks like Lewis, but I think it's Sam Cherry, actually. Well, actually, I was going to say Sam Cherry. I, I, it looks like Cherry to me, too, but I don't know for sure. And this is one of the last issues of the magazine. Again, in that big wipeout, that big purge of 1953, West was one of the titles that went away. Uh, also in 1938, another purchase from the aforementioned Ranger Publications was The Masked Rider. Uh, this was really interesting. Anybody who's actually read a Masked Rider pulp story knows that he dressed completely in black and he had a flowing black cape. As a matter of fact, the early issues of his magazine, he's pictured that way on the cover. Never, not once, in all the issues of Phantom Rider, and I believe there's probably close to 100 that were published by the Thrilling Book. Never once does he wear that outfit. More often than not, he's wearing a red shirt and that domino mask. What you'll see here is this, this magazine, practically every cover, especially I would say of the first five or six years, is, is a repaint, is, is reused from one of the earlier Thrilling Pulps. And it's usually a dead giveaway because he's wearing all different styles of hats. In, on one cover, he'll be wearing a high-peaked crown hat. In another one, he'll be wearing a flat crown. In another one, he'll have one with a side bastion. It's all according to what cover they were remaking. But what they would invariably do was give him a red shirt and paint the domino mask over his eyes. This is one of the earliest thrilling issues. I believe this is March 1939. Now here again, you can see that guy. He's wearing a flat-crowned hat, and he's got the red shirt. I don't think that's a terribly well-executed cover. Again, uh, Mass Rider, un unlike a lot of Western characters where you had a house name, like for example, in Pete Rice, all the stories were presumably written by Austin Gridley, who was Ben Conlon, and then later in Wild West Weekly it was some other guys. Oddly enough, with these long-running characters of Thrilling, you often had the, uh, the authors using their own names instead of a house name, um, which was, I always thought, pretty interesting. Here's another wartime. Now you can see, if you can see that little circled uh, right under the N in Western, you can see that he's wearing the cape. But again, he's wearing his typical red shirt and his black mask as he apparently shoots a guy in the head, <laughs> in the back of the head, no less. Um, in this issue, you had a story by Wayne D. Overholzer, who was another guy who, in the pulps, was not terribly distinguished in the stories he wrote, but he became incredibly popular. Five minutes? All right, we'll, we'll go through these things. This is another one I think is pretty sloppy. This also looks to me like uh, Sam Cherry. What do you think? Now here, you, this is uh, from later in the 40s. This is post-war. This is uh, uh, one of the early Jerome Rosen covers. There's another one. Now by this time, these are new covers. These are not repainted from other magazines. These were done for Phantom Rider. But again, for reasons known to no one, they chose to ignore the dressed in black, presumably just because of newsstand reasons. Red and yellow were colors that always attract, as Harry Steger found out at popular publications. Red, yellow, and black always attracted the eye, especially of male readers. So I, I think that's why they kept them in the red shirt. Just looked better. Okay, Range Riders, another title that started in 1938. Again, lasted until 1953. This, uh, the character in this was called Steve Reese, and he was, again, totally nondescript. He could be anybody. You could call him anything you want. You could call him Abraham Lincoln. He just went through the motions. Uh, I've yet to read a single issue of this pulp that didn't put me to sleep. 
Did have some nice covers, though, especially during the wartime years. This is one of the later issues. Again, you see the ever-popular A. Leslie. Down here you have Walker Ray Thompson. He was an, uh, Tompkins, he was another guy who did a, a ton of Western work, both under his own name and under a variety of pseudonyms and house names. Real Kid was uh, a major title in that Tom Curry came up with a gimmick of having the principal character um, interact with real historical figures. Now, he often gets the chronology wrong. He, he often has major historical figures coexisting, you know, like when they were really 30 years apart. But that's a technicality. We don't worry about such things. Again, this looks to me like another George Rosen cover. That's, that's definitely Rosen. Bob Pryor, of course, was the name of the Rio kid. He was another guy who frequently worked undercover with various people to foil plots. And of course, that's one of the later ones. Thrilling Group had such nice hand-lettered logos in the early, and they invariably went to these crummy, you know, type, uh, uh, bo very boring looking logos as the 50s dragged on. Exciting Western was the uh, last of the major titles. There were a number of minor Western titles. Uh, again, this was a fairly undistinguished pulp in the beginning. It was kind of the typical stuff, the same kind of stories that you would read in popular Western or thrilling Western, until they got the services of W.C. Tuttle, one of my favorites, who of course uh, for the magazine Adventure created Hashknife Hartley and Sleepy Stevens, who were a kind of rangeland Holmes and Watson solving various murders and uh, crimes in the cattle country. So Tombstone and Speedy replaced Hashknife and Speedy. Um, it's my own belief that Tuttle was strictly recycling earlier stories because, I mean, it was bad enough that he recycled them even when he was writing for the better markets because there are Hashknife stories not only in Adventure but also in Argosy and Short Stories magazine which were three of the, uh, of the biggest magazines during the 30s and 40s. And even for those top paying markets, he was recycling old plot gambits and character types. I mean, sometimes with Tuttle, it's, it's very hard to tell whether you've read the story before or not because he reuses so many of the same gimmicks. You know, the bantering deputy, the inept sheriff, the, uh, the ranch owner who's accused of a crime he didn't commit, and Hashknife and Speedy always rode into the rescue. Well. Tombstone and Speedy were a little different. They added a little humor to the proceedings, but you could tell that, that old W.C. was really just reworking some of those stories, and he was probably saying, you know, Christ, for the money that Leo Margulies is paying me, I'm not going to write a brand new story. So it's pretty easy to me uh, to tell that, that he was moving somewhere else. This is another one I'm pretty sure is Sam Cherry. This is pretty much representative of the covers at this time. This again is one of the very late issues, early 50s, and then you're out. Again, 1953, that big purge gone. This is the last of the major thrilling Western pulps. It uh, didn't last very long, but it was a big deal. Hopalong Cassidy Western Magazine. This is another George Rosen cover, which of course has nothing to do with Hopalong Cassidy. Not only does he not look like William Boyd of movies and TV, he doesn't look like Clarence Mulford's original Hopalong Cassidy either. So I have no idea what this cover was originally painted for. This is a 1951 issue. 
Rustlers of Red Fork, of course, was written by Louis L'Amour under another name. He disavowed those novels later on. He tried to claim that he didn't write them at all. Now, this was issue number one. By issue number two, suddenly we've got Hoppy. We've got William Boyd being painted again. This is another George Rosen cover. Uh, Trail of Seven Pines is another new Louis L'Amour novel. Um, I don't know why this magazine didn't catch on, but it didn't. Hoppy was big in 1951. That was at the height of his fame on TV. The movies were run as primetime network, nationwide network on NBC, and yet uh, they were going nowhere. Uh, so that's pretty much it. Like I said, you had some other minor titles, Rodeo Romances, Giant Western, Triple Western, which actually was a reprint book. But that was pretty much it. These were the major pulps from the thrilling Western group. Like I say, any of you who are interested in reading them or collecting them, the good news is they go pretty cheap. The bad news is there's always a reason why pulps like that go cheap. But I hope you've enjoyed looking at the covers anyway. There's some pretty covers. And thanks, and thanks again to Pulp Fest. And let's have a hand for all the volunteers and committee members who work so hard every year to put this on. So before they bring the hook out, I'll say goodbye. Uh, tomorrow night, I'll be with Will Murray. We'll be talking to the uh, descendant of uh, Leo Margulies himself. We'll be giving us some inside information and insights on the thrilling group and its editorial policies. So we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.